They called the Library of Congress and got a live person, this really nice but sort of uh, perplexed person. Why is this person calling? Why is he asking this question? I said, can you, do just, can you just look up how many publications there are in a particular subject? She said, yeah. I said, well, could you start with, I want to give you three people, John F. Kennedy, Winston Churchill, and Jesus Christ. I want you to tell me how many publications are in the records of the Library of Congress for each person. And I think the, the, the hundreds were about Jesus or about Kennedy and Churchill. I think the number was around 20,000 for Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today I've got Don Barkley from Search Orange County back here in studio with me, and we're talking about a topic that was really your idea. You uh, brought this to my attention and said I'd love to do a podcast on it, so why don't you introduce it? What are we going to be talking about today? All right, Blaine. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be in Texas. Um, Well, the idea came from reading some exceptional books. And it made me want to talk about the exceptional Jesus. Um, You'll hear along the way that I I really love these four books, Uh, you know. And I'll I'll mention them as we go. But but just to give you a hint, um, Tom Holland, who is an atheist, wrote a long book called Dominion. He's a historian, and uh, he he is so enchanted with. Jesus Christ, and yet not a Christian. At the end of one of this, his his podcast interviews, he says, "I feel like a a child pressing my nose up against a a candy store window, looking in." Um, and so he uh, he starts out by saying, "How was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world?" Wow. He, he was a crucified Jew, he says, who is now worshipped by billions. I mean, that's we, we just kind of take that as, oh, yeah, right. Jesus, Jesus was, a, a, was crucified. He was Jewish. Um, that's what I'm going to talk about with you today. And thanks for letting me uh, choose the topic and go with this. Well, I'm excited because, uh, you know, I get to go along – the ride with everybody listening as well here. So uh, let's let's dive right in. I know we're going to start by talking a little bit about just the impact that that Jesus had. You alluded to it there from uh, that quote, but when you think of just who he was from a historical perspective, what do we know about Jesus? What's some of the impact that he's had on the world? Well, yeah, and it's it's amazing. You know, if you've heard the old, perhaps listeners have heard the old kind of poem, he never wrote a book, he never led an army, he never held a public office, uh, that whole thing. And that's that's kind of, that's part of the um, the enigma is how a man who never was prominent in any way as a, a writer, a leader, in fact, Rome barely knew of him. Historians like Tacitus write of him kind of in passing, um, but he made he made our world the way it is, and that's the that's that's one way of saying what his impact is. John Artborg wrote a book in 2012 called "Who Is This Man?" and I heard John speak on this topic just uh, over, at Christmas, 
he says, I love this line, he says, it is in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. It's <laughs> <laughs> one way of saying it. Yeah. He says, from the dark ages to postmodernity, he is the man who won't go away. But then he goes on, but it's not just that. Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and virtually the entire Western system of education and scholarship would arise because of his followers. Though he never led an army or held public office, yet the movement he started would eventually mean the end of emperor worship, be cited in documents like the Magna Carta, begin a tradition of common law and limited government, and undermine the power of the state rather than reinforce it as other religions in the empire had done. It is because of his movement that language such as we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, entered history. Um, I want to jump to, you know, something that Christianity gets a bad rap for sometime is that uh, it's a narrow religion. How will people hear? It's, uh, it's, a, it, it's um, about a, a Jesus Christ figure in the Bible without which people in foreign Amazonian jungles or um, deep in, into, the, into the, um, the interior of Africa will never know about. Right. Yeah, I was just having this conversation over the weekend, believe it or not, with a, with a friend of mine. So, yeah, it comes up very, very often. It's unfair, right? That's yeah. the charge. Yeah, it's unfair. And the the irony is, I mean, you can see why would they would think that. Um, it seems like a Western religion. It seems like a U.S. religion. It started in Europe, and the, the cathedrals show that it was prominent. In, uh, in in making Christen, Christendom, but what about the rest of the world? And and the uh, the amazing thing is, it's actually become uh, the world is becoming more Christian, uh, and America's maybe uh, less. Yes, that's right. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote an article for Christianity Today, and and I, the the title caught me. The, it's called. She said the most diverse movement in history. Who is she for somebody who might not know? You know. I, I know she's she's a, an apologist. Does she teach? I don't know where is she a professor someplace. Uh, that I don't know, but yeah, she's a, she defends Christianity and she writes books and right. stuff like that. Very very articulate. Yeah. Um, she says, and a couple of things here that surprised me today: Christianity is the largest and most diverse belief system in the world. That's the line that caught me: most diverse system in the world. It's not just a, a religion for um, Westerners, for Europeans, for Americans, for those who have been, you know, conquered by the imperial imperial uh, forces of Christianity. It's it's she says representing the most even racial and cultural spread, with roughly equal numbers of self-identifying Christians living in Europe, North America, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Over sixty percent of Christians live in the global South. So south of the equator, that doesn't include Europe or America. So Rebecca McLaughlin, 
holds a Ph.D. from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill Seminary in London, and she is an author and speaker. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, so she um, she probably has— <laughs> We'll just edit this all in credit. to the front and make it <laughs> yeah. sound like we always knew that. Well, of course we knew that. Um, she says—this uh, is amazing to me. According to Pew Research Center, by 2060, sub-Saharan Africa could be home for 40 percent of the world's self-identifying Christians— and while China is currently the global center of atheism, Christianity is spreading there so quickly that China could have the largest Christian population in the world by 2025 and could be a majority Christian country by 2050. And this comes from Purdue University sociologist, I don't know how to say his name exactly, but Feng Gang Yang. And I looked him up. He is a specialist in the area of Chinese, Asian cultures and religions. But I found that fascinating that by, by 2050, it could be a majority Christian country. And it made me think of Matthew 28, you know, on a mountain in Galilee when Jesus told 11 men. I checked that. I wonder, is, is this where he's talking to 500? No, it says the 11. He takes the 11 up onto a high mountain in Galilee, and he says, go make disciples of all nations. Right before that, it says, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Uh, I don't think they're doubting now because of this amazing impact that Jesus Christ has had on this country, on this world. Yeah, and, and that's what's so fascinating about this topic that you picked, because even even uh, actually in the same conversation I was referencing over the weekend, we were talking about the question, was he even a real person? Mm. And, and so I had, my friend was, you know, thought he was, but also thought, Maybe there's reasons to think he wasn't even really a real person. And so when you start looking at all of that kind of evidence, I mean, uh, it's really pretty incredible that right. nobody debates whether, I mean, really, right. I shouldn't say serious people right. don't really debate whether he was a real guy. Even the most minimalist, progressive, Bible doubting scholars of history of the first century. John Dominic Crossan, for instance, Marcus Borg, they, they think it's a foolish notion that Jesus didn't exist yes. or that he wasn't crucified by Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Some of those basic facts are just, you know, common knowledge except to the kind of a fringe. And then you added on even some of the stuff you just referenced. It's pretty amazing the impact that he's had apart from uh, apart from theological in just on the world, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, if he wasn't even a person, it'd be pretty hard to imagine some of the things that uh, we're talking about. But uh, anyway, I know you've got more that you want to share about. Uh, well, about yeah, him. I just um, I just wanted to say too that he's had an impact on people who don't believe in him, and they don't know it. Yeah, the book that I, uh, the second book that I love, um, and was in, inspired in part according to the author, this author, uh, by Dominion, by Tom Holland, is the book by Glenn Scrivener called The Air We Breathe. And he starts out by saying a little question, you know, if you ask a goldfish, you know, what is the water like? His answer is, what's water? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the air we breathe. Um, Scrivener says, goldfish might not know the chemical composition of H2O, but it's still central to their lives. In the same way, I'm guessing that the concerns of the following chapters resonate with you. 
And each chapter is named by these equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. None of these, are val- none of these values are self-evident, nor are they widespread among the civilizations of the world. So where did they come from, and how did they get to become the air we breathe? Um, Tom Holland's dominion is a stunning demonstration of the influence of Jesus Christ on the world. As an atheist, he loved dinosaurs as a kid. And in school, when he started to learn about the ancient civilizations like Greece, Persia, and Rome, he was fascinated especially by Rome because it was like the dinosaur T-Rex that he loved so much as a kid. Ruthless, top of the food chain. And yet he says, the more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, in which he became a specialist as a historian, so the more alien I increasingly found it. It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. That my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I ceased to be Christian. That's interesting, isn't it? It is. For a, for a millennium and more, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly be organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that has come to be hidden from view. view. And that's what Scrivener, why Scrivener entitles his book, The Air We Breathe. Yeah, so it's almost like if you want to understand just how we're living today, you really can't apart from understanding right. the historical Jesus. Right. right, exactly. I mean, to think that, um, to, to even consider that uh, some infants, for instance, wouldn't be, um, it, it would be actually wrong to continue to feed them and help them thrive. Why? Because they're unhealthy or because there's something wrong with them or because they have a birth defect. I mean, that's, how, that's what Rome did. Rome, Rome, in fact, Aristotle and Plato voiced the same, same message that it, it, some infants should die. Now, the, to our ears, that sounds awful. Uh, or to think that um, a, a, a slave owner can do anything sexually he wants with his slave slaves. That's just, that, that's just wrong to us. But it wasn't to them. The air we breathe is that people matter and that they, are, they have value, that the elderly, the old, the young, the, the sick should be treated as human beings. Those are, those are Christian ideas. Those are Christian values. And we swim in that air. And if, even if you disagree with those values, maybe you disagree with a Christian value. You believe that abortion is okay and, in fact, is, is good for a young woman who has an unwanted pregnancy. Well, what you're arguing, the way you're arguing is with Christian values, that that woman's right to choose is important. Where did that come from? That came from Christianity as well. Back in Genesis 1, although, I mean, is that where we're going with some of that? That's right. That's right. And so, you know, Jesus as a Jew was, of course, teaching in the framework of the Jewish value system. 
that is unique. It wasn't a, it didn't come from paganism. It came from Genesis 1:26. He made man male and female in his image. That's a that that would be a that's a disgusting idea to a pagan Roman for instance mm-hmm. that women are are given that same dominion that men are given that every person matters and has value. Um, that's a, those are Christian I- ideas, and Christ, what He brought to it was was something even more amazing, was that the the Lord of the universe would actually die in on our behalf, that the that the the King of the castle would actually lay down His life for the lowly slave who works out in the fields, outside the walls. Um, Holland on his in his book Dominion has the, uh, the uh, depiction of the crucifixion of Christ. It's Salvador Dali's um, way of, of painting the picture where exactly God the Father is looking kind of down on the crucified Christ. And so he begins his book by discussing the crucifixion. Now, that's something that even the Jews found grotesque. The Jews, you know, for any anyone to die on the cross was was awful. But to think that the Son of God would die on the cross wasn't was strange to the ears of Peter and the disciples. No way, Lord, was their answer when Jesus says, I'm going to be tortured, arrested, tortured, and crucified on the third day rise. No way. I, I don't even think they heard on the third day rise. No way are you going to be killed. No, that's not the plan, Lord. We just saw you transfigured. We saw your glory. You're the Messiah. And it's humiliating. That's part of why. I mean, all the pictures you see of him on the cross, uh, he's covered, got some kind of clothing on. But as I understand it, people were not uh, crucified with anything on. It was humiliating, and you'd have you'd be dealing with the the uh, the vultures. You were not dealing with them, just tolerating them, enduring them, and. It was uh, it was a public display of Rome's prowess, um, and so he starts. Holland starts by talking, discussing the cross and how we've accepted it as a sacred symbol. We wear it around our necks as jewelry, and yet in that day, in that day, a Roman citizen wasn't even to look on a crucifixion because it was so degrading. It was only for for the lowest of the lows. It was for the human garbage of society. And so here we have this ethic built on the idea that our God was willing, loved us so much that he was willing to serve those who didn't seem to have any value at all, even his enemies. Um, and, and Holland says, Rome's luxury and splendor depended on keeping those who sustained it in their place. After all, we have slaves drawn from every corner of the world in our households practicing strange customs and foreign cults or none, and it is only by means of terror that we can hope to coerce such scum. You know where that comes from? Tacitus. Mm. Tacitus describing, the, this, is, this is just common knowledge. To the Romans, the notion that the Son of God would be crucified was grotesque, Holland says. Divinity was the, for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies and to suffer at oneself, to nail them to the rocks of a mountain, or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. That is, that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god 
could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. And to the Jews, it was worse. It was blasphemy. It was madness that such a God of all gods, the God of who made heaven and earth, might have had a son, and that his son, suffering the, the fate of a slave, might have been, been tortured to death on a cross were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent. No more shocking, a reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy, it was madness. And that cross is, is around the necks of people who don't even believe in Jesus. That cross is on, on, on tombstones. The word cemetery comes from the word to sleep, John Ortberg says in his book. To sleep, because, and that comes from the notion that when Christians die, they don't die, they sleep. There's the mark of the cross all over the place. Um, what do you think about war? The Red Cross. and Exactly. Right? Yep, exactly. And that to, to take care of sick and dying people, especially sick and dying slaves, was, wasn't heard of. The whole hospital system came out of Christianity. That's one of the things that amazed some early writers about Christianity, that these people care for the leper and the person born blind, the person born lame, for the elderly, uh, for, the, for the abandoned infant, the infant that was thrown into the river and rescued. Orphanages were filled, especially with little girls. And so were the, so were the brothels of little girls that wouldn't, uh, w w were not received by their parents but thrown out into the streets. Um, mm. Today, he says, if you look for a white cross on a green background, the internationally recognized sign, if you're in a crisis, it's the Red Cross, which millions turn to a charity whose strapline sounds suspiciously like a summary, summary of Jesus' famous parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, nowadays, the Good Samaritan is assumed, but there's nothing natural about this, he says. Nature is red in tooth and claw, quoting Tennyson. Compassion comes from another realm. It is in a real state, in a real sense, supernatural. Yeah, it's against everything we would think na right. naturally. And that's kind of the point, right? You're saying so many of the things that we take for granted in the way that the world is working and the, the way we live our lives are really counterintuitive. That's right. It's like when Jefferson says, uh, uh, we have been in doubt. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He calls those that truth self-evident. Holland and these authors say, no, it's anything but. It's not self-evident. All men are created equal. We're not equal. There's rich people, poor people. There's smart people, not so smart people. There's people who own slaves and people who are slaves. There are people who have, have been born in, in a, in a, a well-to-do family, and there are people who are born as, as a peasant. We're anything but equal. So where do we get this idea of equality, if not Genesis 1? And if not Jesus Christ saying, I came as the creator, I came and I, I, I came to die for all is amazing. Um, so I think we've done a good job laying the groundwork really for what we're going to talk about, which is now the rest of the podcast. So why did Jesus change yeah. the world, right? Right. What was it about him? I mean um, – what was it about him led me to think think of it in three ways, and it's really related to the books that I have read. Uh, number one, we're going to talk about what he said. 
Number two, what he didn't say. Now, this comes from a book that is very <laughs> unique. It's uh, by um, Tom Gilson. It's a book called um, Too Good to Be False. And I heard him on a podcast, uh, at least a children's podcast. And uh, and he said I don't that he knew of, and he had scoured the the scholars and and the publications. He didn't know of a book that had been written on what what Jesus didn't do, what he didn't say, which is an interesting premise. And so we're going to talk about that. And third, which you would expect, why did Jesus change the world? Well, it's because of what happened on the third day. Yeah, we ought to be wearing uh, pictures of an empty tomb. You're right. Instead of You're a cross. Right. You that's know, right. I've always thought about that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. An empty cross quite doesn't finish the story, does it? It does not. No. It does not. Okay, well, let's let's start. What did he okay. say? What did he say? Well, I'm going to just kind of list these. I'm not going to give all the texts and everything, but just and just think, if your brother or your neighbor said these things about himself, what would you think? He claimed authority to forgive sins. Somebody said it's, it's like claiming authority to issue a passport. Blaine, I, I can issue a passport. And your question would be? On whose authority? Uh, exactly. <laughs> and that's what they asked Jesus. He claimed that something greater than the temple is here. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And for, for the scholars who say that Jesus' divinity is only in the, in the Gospel of John and very weakly stated in the, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here we have in Mark early on these two ideas. He claimed that for the authority to forgive sins, something greater than the temple is here, and he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, let me ask you this, though. So somebody might be listening to us and go, and that doesn't sound like a claim to divinity or claim to something special. To be the Lord of the Sabbath? Yeah. Yeah, to be Lord of the Sabbath, you think, well— that you know, I can I can just hear people going like, yeah, I don't get yes, it. Yes, yes. Well, you think about where did the Sabbath law come from? It came from God. Yeah, at Mount Sinai. Yeah, through Moses, right? Yeah. And so, the Lord of the Sabbath, really? Now, the Sabbath Sabbath was kind of the one of the ways that that was a measure as to whether people Jews were keeping the law, whether they were keeping Sabbath days, right? Yeah, it was very important to the. It still is today. You can't you can't go to Israel and ride an elevator on the on the Sabbath if it's not if it's it, well you've got to hit every floor because it's a Sabbath. It's work to push the buttons. The Sabbath is very important to the Jews, and it was it was as important when Jesus walked and for him to say that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. It's like saying, I'm the Lord that gave the law at Sinai. I make the rules. I make the rules. Right. I can change the rules. Right. Yes. So the point is if God made the rules and he's saying, I can come along and change these or whatever, then that's a claim that he's exactly. equal with right. God. Right. And that's how the Jews took it too. Yeah. Um, he claimed to be the judge of the world. That's amazing, and he did this in a couple of ways. We'll see. He did it in, in the Dan, by quoting from Daniel seven, claiming to be the Son of Man who comes in the clouds with great glory. It was at that statement that the that the Jewish leaders who were trying Jesus, who were his judges, heard him say very clearly, "I am your judge." Hmm. Um, 
He claimed to be the only way, the only door, the light of the world, the bread of life, and the good shepherd. The good shepherd, what did people probably think about that? I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm thinking the good shepherd, nothing, there's no more famous psalm, at least in, to our, in our ears, than Psalm 23. Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And, and yet, with all of this, he said he came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life and predicted that he would be arrested, tortured, and crucified. I, I just also read... I had never read it um, before. I think I'd read maybe a chapter or two, um, Philip Yancey's book. It's been around a while, um, The Jesus I Never Knew. And in it, he says he um, was in an uh, interfaith group in Chicago with Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And they, they had a, a weekend where they experienced each of their worship services. And he said there were great similarities between the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians when it came to praising God, um, extolling his attributes, thanksgiving to God, uh, dependence on God. But the one thing that was stood out so obviously different was um, communion. That to talk about a dying God, to talk about the blood of Christ, the body of Christ broken, that was that was that was different and unique. So when we talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, the exceptional Jesus, we're also talking about comparative religion. That this idea of God dying on our behalf is um, in, in a blasphemy to the Muslim, and probably the same to to to, to most Jews, Jews who take the, their Bible seriously. You're not going to believe me, but I, this was part of the conversation that I was having over the weekend as well. We really? talked about a lot wow, of things. Wow, you had quite a conversation. <laughs> we did. I go, I'm glad I'm on this podcast. Was that with one so person I, or was that yes. with a group? Well, two. Two. two it was people. two people. Okay, wow. But, you know, together we're just sitting sure. here talking. But, uh, but yeah, the idea that that they brought up was that isn't – isn't G? Isn't it all kind of the same? Aren't they? You know, Jesus shows up. Mm. He's don't you know? Don't the Jews like Jesus and the Muslims? And isn't isn't it all kind of the same God and the same basic stuff? You know the story. Mm -hmm. And so some of these things that we're talking about, these are that you're saying he said. These are the things that really make. These are the things that others reject. They or do. That I would say maybe positively. If you're considering Jesus, you gotta wrestle with yep. these statements and these things yep. that he did. Exactly. Um, uh, look what the Jewish leaders um, plotted and eventually accomplished with Jesus. You know, they they had him crucified. It was a it was a it was a a, a, a joint effort by the Romans and the Jewish leaders, and of course Jesus was a Jew. And believed that he was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, which is, you know, the Christian Old Testament, of course. A lot of people don't know that, that the, uh, you know, our Old Testament is identical except for book order um, uh, to the Jewish Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus says, this is an amazing claim too. Another thing he said was, I'm the fulfillment of those prophecies. Again, what if your neighbor 
Tom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> says, you know, those those passages in the Bible about a, a coming Messiah, that they're fulfilled in me. It's me. It's about me. In in Luke, at the end of the book, he's walking with two disciples who are lamenting the crucifixion and don't believe in don't believe that he's resurrected yet. And Jesus says, in beginning beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So your neighbor comes along and he goes, hey, you got an Old Testament laying in, well, just the Testament or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> back then. But uh, yeah, you got the, got a copy of that. And let me show you all the places where it talks about me. And I know. people do this today and claim to be Jesus, as you know. And they do. And we can see what people do to them. We call them crazy. Uh, we do. Isn't it interesting, speaking of the impact of Jesus Christ, that that it's common for people in mental institutions who say, I, I'm Jesus Christ. Uh, one thing I think uh, John Ortberg asks is, do people who are Buddhists, are they in, in, in medical, insti- I mean, mental institutions claiming to be Buddha? He said he didn't know. But it's amazing how Jesus Christ is prominent even for those who are out of their minds. Um, that's what the Naz- the people of Nazareth thought about Jesus. They heard his teaching, and um, and he was quoting again. He, he said, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me." He he rolls out the scroll. He's invited to read as a visiting rabbi. He he rolls out the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah, and there's sixty one. And, and it, this kind of catches my attention. It didn't before, but the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. What is the word anointed? You know, anointed, Mashiach, Messiah, means the anointed one. He has anointed me to pro- proclaim good news to the poor, etc. You know, he gets all the way down to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, when he makes some statements about how even the Gentiles are going to be involved and included, even even when Jews like you in Nazareth might not be because you don't respond to the to messianic claim, um, and they then they tried to throw him off a precipice. So here he's claiming, I am basically saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Anointed One. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In Luke 18, um, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. John 5, he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So he, and, and he said some even more outlandish things. I mean, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, those are, those are the strangest Oddest sayings. I'd recommend uh, reading Philip Yancey just on the Beatitudes in the, the the Jesus I never knew. He he claims to set a new moral trajectory that would change the world. How with things like love your enemies. Just we've heard that so often, but to pagan to pagan Rome and to the Jews, love your enemies. The imprecatory Psalms are a great example of hatred toward your enemies. These are psalms where the psalmist is so free about getting his anger and his, his bitterness, his, his hatred 
of his enemies off his chest. Or pray for those who persecute you. Really? Or the kingdom of heaven is for children. No, 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 no. The, Plato would say, what? The, no, if the, the ideal realm of the, of the divine is for the philosopher king, not for the child. Or turn the other cheek. If, if, if somebody asks you, if somebody slaps you on one, one cheek, turn the other cheek. If somebody takes your shirt, give them your, your cloak as well takes your cloak, give them his shirt as well. Um, so so these are some of the uh, amazing outlandish things that he said, and he did some outlandish things too. Um, I don't know we have, we, if we should go into this, but one thing, one hit way— Hit the highlights. Hit the highlights. Hit the highlights. I will. There's some interesting stuff in yeah, here. Um, well, in Yan- Yancey, um, he, he, I love the sentence, the Gospels present a man who has such charisma that people will sit three days straight without food. <laughs> and he's talking about the feeding of the 5,000, of course. Um, and, and he says he, he seems excitable, impulsively moved with compassion or filled with pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses, sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy, exuberance over his disciples' successes, a blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists, Grief over an unreceptive city, and then those awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane, Gethsemane and on the cross. He had nearly inexhaustible patience with individuals, but no patience at all with institutions and injustice. Three times at least he cried in front of his disciples. Bonhoeffer is quoted by Yancey, says he's called a man for others. He's kept himself free, free for the other person. He would accept almost anybody's invitation to dinner. And as a result, no public figure had a more diverse list of friends, ranging from rich people, Roman centurions, Pharisees to tax collectors, prostitutes, and leprosy victims. People liked being with Jesus where he was, joy was. Pretty remarkable. Pretty, you know, uh, this is, this is um, in his doing, he displayed his character. So in his claims about himself, he displayed his identity at least his self-identity, what he thought of himself. Now, we could call a man like that crazy, and many did. Even his family tried to rein him in because they thought he had gone mad. But here we have, but here we have an ex- just as you watch him live life, I loved the sentence, he, um, he was, he was uh, about joy. What was it? Um, I can't find it now. Uh, oh, peop, uh, where where he was, joy was. Where he was, joy was. Yes, and why is that? Why is that? Uh, a person who made these, who who befuddled people, and who irritated people, and irked people to the point of wanting to do him in, and yet he was he was magnetic in his in his in his way with people, loving them. I think. Um, so we looked at what he said. It's one of the ways that he changed the world. I want to know about this, what he didn't say. What, right. What's going on okay, here? Okay, okay. Okay, I'll just list some of these, and we'll, I'll, I'll develop them a little bit. But he never said, thus says the Lord. But instead, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, of course, but I say to you. Well, this is an important phrase in the Old Testament. So the yes. Old Testament prophets, they wouldn't go, I'm telling you. 
here's the deal. They would say, thus says the Lord. Thus it says was like the Lord. an introductory formula that's letting people know this isn't from me. That's this right. is from God. That's right. I, I uh, It's um, Rene Pasha in his book about the authority of Scripture who's, who says that 3,808 times Old Testament authors claim to be transmitting the very words of God. <laughs> and and so thus says the Lord is all through the prophets. And Moses comes down and says, This is this is what the Lord has given as law this day. Right? Um Deuteronomy is called the second law because it's it's a reiteration of the laws that come down from God. But Jesus says, you have heard, do not commit murder, or you have heard not to commit adultery, but I say to you. And and the crowd say, who is this man that speaks by his own authority? Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't even say the Lord says or God says. He doesn't even use footnotes from other rabbis. He doesn't say, <laughs> as Rabbi Hillel will agree with me on this, or, or Rabbi Eliezer would differ on me with this, but I say to you, along with Hillel and Shemuel or somebody, but he says, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you. Um, an- another thing he says, he never said our father when he refers to God. The only time he says it is when people say, how do we pray? His disciples ask, so how teach us to pray? And he says, well, say our father. That's interesting. And Gilson points out this is strange to never say, he never says our father. He says my father, my father. And he gives an illustration of two boys. One is the son of a, of a Catholic priest. I think he, he has an, as an Anglican priest, but I, I have never known an Anglican priest that is called father. Maybe they, they are called father. But anyway, his story is of a, of a son who, two boys, one is the son of an Anglican priest and the congregation calls him father. And the boys are playing in the in the churchyard, and one of the boys said, man, is, there anybody, is it possible to get up into that belfry, up into that tower? Wouldn't that be cool? And the son of the priest says, well, let's go and, a- let's go and ask my father. He, he, it wouldn't be right to, for him to say, it would be awkward for him to say, let's go ask our father. Well, the, the, he's the father to the congregation, so why not? Because the boy who is the son, has a, has a different kind of relationship with the priest because he's his son and the priest is actually his father. And that's the sense that Gilson says that Jesus uses the term, my father, my father. Interesting. Even at the age of 12, you know, his parents say, you've, you've worried your father and me sick. Where were you? And, and you should know that I would be in my father's house. Not our father's house. <laughs> Which he says to his <laughs> earthly father. Yes. And exactly. mother. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, this next one's interesting. So uh, what he didn't say about faith. I know, I know. It never said he had faith in God. It said he was faithful, but it never said he was faithful. Or fa- He says he never had faith in my father or the father. Faith like we would say, place your faith in. Place your in. faith in, right. Or, or to, yeah, to believe or to have faith that... Uh, you you would be healed or something. Yeah, and he he did a lot of miracles, but it never says that he exercised faith. Now he he certainly believed that the power was there in God, and in himself, 
but it never says he had faith. And and Gilson says, I have three reasons for saying so. First, of th- uh, first of all, he says, I think normally we would expect the Gospels to mention Jesus' faith, and it's surprising that they didn't. And he gives three reasons why not. First, the New Testament freely and specifically speaks of Jesus' other virtues. So his love is talked about, compassion, gentleness, knowledge, wisdom, goodness, forgiveness, humility, joy, prayer, obedience, and patience. The Bible is is explicit about those. Two are absent, repentance and faith, which is interesting. Second, we know that faith was important to Jesus, really important. He mentions it. Uh, three times more than he mentioned love. So we know it's important to Jesus. And third, it says, like Jesus, the Apostle Paul also speaks of his own love, patience, endurance, and other virtues. Unlike Jesus, though, Paul speaks of his own faith at least a couple of dozen times. Add these three together, and it really seems as though the Gospels ought to have mentioned Jesus' faith, but they didn't. That must mean something, but what? And he says, while faith begins with knowledge, it also includes some element of the unknown, and typically something being put at risk. If Jesus had perfect knowledge, he argues, he was human indeed, and he grew in wisdom and stature and all that. But in his ministry, it's clear he had perfect knowledge about so many things. There were some times where he said, I don't know, for instance, when when, when uh, the Son of Man will return, or when, when uh, the end will come. Only the Father knows. So he was limited in some ways, but the, but it seems like he had perfect knowledge about God. And so Gilson says, this shouldn't be hard to accept if we understand Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. Surely he was pleasing to the first person, the Father from eternity past. Who would say, though, that he had faith in the Father from eternity past? As if, as if there were even a hint of the unknown in their heavenly relationship. So you think about that in the Trinity and eternity past. You know, we, we, we see in the scriptures that he existed with the Father, with the Holy Spirit from eternity. Mm-hmm. And perfect relationship. To think that the Son of God in that relationship, it, that it would be appropriate for him to have faith in the Father— just doesn't seem, no, there's a perfect, there's perfect knowledge there. And he says, he concludes, God doesn't put faith in God, doesn't need to. So it's what he didn't say that he didn't have faith or that he, or the others, the writers don't say he had faith is, is not that he wasn't faithful or that he didn't please God, but because there wasn't that element of risk, he had no, there was no element of risk, but he just, and whatever the reason, it's not, it's not there. It reminds me of that passage in, a famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. And why is that? Why, you know, why is love greater than faith and hope? And I think uh, at least one explanation that I've heard is that, uh, at some uh, point when Jesus returns in in the the resurrection and and eternity there is no need for faith and hope these are temporary things that we need as finite and fallen individuals both of which seem like Jesus didn't need because of his right and in that deity it, you're right and it, it, you're right it's a, that's a great passage to think about in this way because if if it's about if it's involving knowledge and you've had perfect knowledge then faith 
and hope wouldn't be a as big an element necessary for our our, our joy, right? Yeah. And he says, and, and in that passage, we see in a, in a glass darkly, but then face to face, we will know as we've been fully known. And so Jesus, Jesus fully knows. And so I think that's, I mean, I, I'm going to think on that some uh, for a while, but all of these ideas were kind of new thoughts, uh, were, were new thoughts to me. Another thing he didn't do, he never used his supernatural powers for his own benefit when he was hungry or tired, threatened or crucified. You think um, even, you know, the tempter said, and he's hungry, you know, turn these stones into bread. Meanwhile, our whole society and way of living is using uh, not supernatural powers, but any just advantages that we can have to our own benefit. That's right. our natural bent. Can you imagine if one of us had supernatural powers to not use them for ourselves would almost – we almost can't fathom no, that. No, no. In, in a uh, – when you're really cornered, when you're really – when you when you, uh, you lose your wallet and you're at the uh, – at the gate, uh, about to board a flight, and you don't have your ID. I just think of, I, on the way here, I I locked my luggage um, with a new combination, and I forgot my number. Oh no! <laughs> so I had to actually leave the airport in Orange County. I called a repairman. I drove from the airport with my luggage, and he he opened it. No. If I, it and I, I and I missed my flight, so I had to fly two hours later because of that mistake. Now, if I, if I, you know, if I had power, I would just I would have, okay, I would use I would have used it then because I wanted to get here. I didn't want to arrive late. Um, but this is this is interesting. And, and all of these, you just hear Gilson kind of thinking. I it's like he's humbly saying, I don't know exactly why. I'm just telling you this is what's. I've, I've scoured the text, and you don't see him doing these things or saying these things. Another one, he never investigated or deliberated. He quotes A.G. Haywood. He never investigates. He just knows. Like, you know, any of these questions like, is it right to pay tax to, to Caesar? It's just like, boom, show me a coin. And, you know, I would think even the wisest professor, academic, smart person might say, hmm, good question. Let me think on that. Uh, give me a minute. Um, but never does he take a minute. Um, he didn't object when people worshipped him. Never Horace Bushnell, who's not exactly, you know, in our in a in a conservative Christian camp that or no should we recommend all his books, but he says, never was there a teacher that so uniformly baffled every expectation of his followers, never one that was followed so persistently. So never one that so baffled his followers or followed so persistently. I think that's just so great. He never lets up relying on his own position as his authority from which to teach. He never lets up relying on his own position as his authority which to teach. You have heard, but I say to you, I say to you. Um, his paradoxical leadership, um, you know, your degree is in leadership, right, Blaine? Yeah, don't you forget it. I either. know, I know. 
<laughs> I, I don't. I can't. I can't. It's a it's a weird <laughs> thing to. Uh, yes, it is. But um, you know what you in all seriousness, what you learn when you go through a program like that is how much you've got to learn about that kind of subject because you're always learning. But yes, I did study that. Um, so he he talks about this aspect of Jesus' leadership style. And he says it's completely unexpected and paradoxical, so much so the best way to introduce it might be to imagine certain character traits of Jesus being practiced in today's leadership world. I'll do that, he says, by means of this highly imaginary memo sent from one corporate vice president to another. Okay, so here's the imaginary memo. What if you got this? Uh, Rob, I've got a new candidate, Jack Benson, to lead out our Midwest group. I wanted to run his profile by, by you before deciding on him. Jack comes highly recommended, and he has some real positives going for him, but I have my doubts. Tell me what you think of hiring someone like this. I can't find anyone who'll say they've ever seen him learn from experience, especially from any of his own mistakes. No one says he's ever even admitted to making a mistake. His leadership skills haven't improved one bit since he started out. I've checked his bio, and I can't find a single sign of any character growth in him, not even a trace of it. Rarely will he give a straight answer when you give him a, when you ask him a question. If you've got an opinion and it's different than his, well, you're just wrong. It's do it my way with him, his way or the highway, no exceptions. He won't even be friends with anyone who won't do what he commands. He actually does use that word. So what do you think, boss? Should we hire him? <laughs> I just think that's so funny. Um, because truly only God, so Gilson says this, so because truly only God here in the flesh could have a profile like that and still persuade people to follow him, yet that is exactly what Jesus did. There's no denying his leadership effectiveness. People followed him gladly when he was alive. That's a good start. Billions of people 2,000 year later, years later still follow him, which is a great deal more than a good start. So the lesson of this memo obviously isn't that Jesus failed as a leader. Rather, it tells us he succeeded in a manner that no other leader could. Well, it's interesting in in studying uh, the subject of leadership, two things. One of the big catchphrases the last few decades, everybody knows a servant leader, mm-hmm. right? And that's popular in all kinds of secular books, but it's so biblically – it's really interesting. Yeah, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah it's very – it's just really interesting that – even the beginning of our conversation, it ties into that because, yeah, a lot of people never make the connection because it's mm-hmm. a secular. They just they're just doing research into how you can lead better, and they find out that that's a that's a model that works very mm-hmm. well. The other thing is there's a, a classic uh, book called Good to Great that Jim Collins wrote that is is a great book, and probably a lot of people have, have read it. They're listening. One of the marks – it's a study of companies, what makes mm-hmm. companies you know, go from doing pretty well to really excelling and doing, doing great. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, one of those marks is that when the, when the leader leaves, the next leader thrives and the company does even better. Like they keep on the trajectory instead of what – Often happens is somebody comes in and the company's doing well, and the next leader comes in and they maybe have a, a dip or they fall mm-hmm. off or they don't continue on whatever they were doing. That there's some kind of setback. But anyway, with with Jesus, you talk about him being the greatest leader. From that regard, I mean, he he leaves, if you will, 
and you look at what's happened the last 2,000 years and it's it, it's more incredible than anything that happened when he was on the earth, if I can say it that I, way, I in volume and just numbers and people whose lives were, were impacted. It's stunning. Right, right. It, it is um, – I, I love the uh, the summaries that I've read, like Gilson's here, where you see he's an effective leader, but he he baffled his followers. He was um, sometimes shocking in his in his the way he answered questions, the way he treated people, um, and to for a leader to not learn, for a leader not need to learn, for a leader to to say, "But I say to you by my own authority," for a leader to say, "I forgive sin, I forgive your sins," for a leader to say, "I am the Lord of all your." most sacred inst- religious institutions and and then to be followed by people and not not killed or um committed uh is is it says something about the question how do we he must be a person we need to look into we need to investigate this person and um and so anyway, that's all of this to say is there's there's plenty of reason to consider Jesus just be, if not for anything else, but the values that he brings to the table that people who even don't believe in Jesus believe. As, as Scrivener says, people believe in kingdom values even though they reject the king. That Christianity has um, is, a, is the air we breathe because Christ brought a new kind of way to live that people were attracted to and people are still following in by the billions. So let's tie a bow on this episode. So we're talking about why Jesus changed the world and you know all the stuff we've said is is all true but I would bet Don if this last point wasn't true we wouldn't be talking about Jesus most likely, and that's the 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 reality of what happened on the third day after his his crucifixion. So, right, right. And I've never seen it quite put as well as in uh, Glenn Scrivener's words in the Air We Breathe at the end of the book. And so, um, forgive me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read a, a a good section of this. I found it just really compelling. He says, hang on, was the Jesus story fabricated? And that's a, you know, that's a good point he's asking. I, I know people, relatives, uh, friends that say, well, it's an amazing story, but really to believe that a person rose from the dead, we can't prove that scientifically, even historically. Can't, couldn't there be more compelling evidence than what we have? Plus, what kind of evidence would it take to, to believe that a person dies and then is alive? When people are dead, they're dead. So, so he, he says to this, we have been putting quite a bit of store by Matthew's gospel in the arguments above. Perhaps Matthew and the other gospel writers are not to be trusted. Perhaps they took strands of the historical Jesus and wove them together with the extraordinary prophecies of old to create a fabulous tale, one to take the world by storm. 
it's worth pressing into that possibility. If nothing else, doing so reveals the scale of the project. Imagine the writer's room as someone commissions the authors of the Gospels. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I have a job for you. I know you've had no training or prior experience, but we need you to write the most influential works in literature. <laughs> As for the timing, we'll have to move on this, unfortunately, move on this, unfortunately. It would have been better to wait a couple of centuries before inventing our legends. That way, none of Christ's contemporaries could contradict our story. But we are where we are. The Apostle Paul has forced the pace, writing his letters to churches around the Mediterranean. He's been preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah, and heaven knows why. But all these people have believed in God on a cross. The story seems to be working, so now we need you to fill in the details. Please, can you write the origins story of our for our hero? Paul's letters gave the bare bones. We want you to put warm flesh on them. Are you up to it? It won't be easy. We need this to be the life and times of the greatest figure in human history, God, but also man, sinless, but fully alive, pure, but with profound depths, the judge of the world, but with bottomless compassion, the fulfillment of all Jewish hopes, but with a global appeal, a man in time, but a man for all times. We need a hero with heart-melting kindness, yet steely determination. We need him blasting the self-righteous and befriending sinners. We need sublime ethical teaching to fall from his lips, the kind that builds civilizations. We therefore, <laughs> we, we, need extraordinary, we need extraordinary miracles from him, the kind that would have been noticed and could therefore be contradicted by the generation to which you're writing. We need a credible narrative arc whereby he remains impeccably righteous but is nonetheless condemned as a blasphemer. And we need it all to stand up to scrutiny, scriptural, theological, geographic, linguistic, literary, and historical. It needs to be believable both near and far, now and later, for those who've lived through these times and for all generations to come. Got it? Now get to work. This is why he says, this is why Jordan Peterson which he talks about at the beginning of this last chapter, finds it so difficult to believe that human beings, quote, human beings invented this unbelievably preposterous story, unquote. Those are Peterson's words. It is, in his words, an impossible task. When you read the Gospels for yourselves, you begin to ask, along with Bible scholar Peter Williams, which genius comes up with this? There is genius here. There is enough genius in the Jesus story to remake the world, but we need to ask, does the genuine does the, does the genius reside in the authors, or have the authors basically reported the genius of their hero, Jesus? Both options are somewhat miraculous, but one of them involves a miracle maker, maker who can explain the feat. That's why he calls his la this last chapter, Choose Your Miracle. Which is, which is more difficult to believe, that this team of writers could come up with this type of exceptional hero, Jesus, or that the God of the universe could come down, die on our behalf, and rise from the dead. They're both miraculous. So choose your miracle. Yeah, have you ever tried to write an important email? It takes, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> Just that so is hard. hard. It is so hard. And, and the thing, too, that the gospel writers, they didn't, they didn't, clean up the the um the um the kind of the difficult uh inconsistencies alleged contradictions what I, I don't think are but the inconsistencies they they wrote it seems with integrity and honesty 
from their point of view, not colluding with the other authors, but writing what they wanted to write. There's a genuineness, I think, about it. Well, yeah, and you think about we have people who are professional authors, so I would just make it personal. I mean, we all write emails right. and stuff. And you know, That's just a hard thing to do. But people write books and then people write series of books, right? And you think of uh, – you think of Lewis in the Narnia series, mm -hmm. right? A amazing and has stood the test of many decades and is great, great books. But I don't know of anybody that's reading them every day for life advice, that's studying them the way – even they are studied literarily, but right. not the way that I know. the Bible – there's not. I know. I, I, I called about I, – I had estimated about 35 years ago I was going to – do a talk about Jesus Christ. I called the Library of Congress. This is before the internet. By the way, the internet doesn't really help. It didn't help me this morning to kind of check it. <laughs> but I called the Library of Congress and got a live person, this really nice but sort of uh, perplexed person. Why is this person calling? Why is he asking these questions? I said, can you, do just, can you just look up how many publications there are in a particular subject? She says, yeah. I said, well, could you start with, I want to give you three people, John F. Kennedy, Winston Churchill, and Jesus Christ. I want you to tell me how many publications are in the records of the Library of Congress for each person. And I think the the, the hundreds were about Jesus or about Kennedy and Churchill. I think the number was around 20,000 for Jesus Christ. So like you said, to, 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 to have a figure in a book that is written about by that many people contemplating, um, trying to figure this person out, talking about the depth of, of truth and moral morality that is, that is often discussed in, in when talking about Jesus Christ. What does the Sermon on the Mount mean? What is the what is the what is the nature of his, of his deity and humanity? You know, questions like that, uh, the incarnation, um, all those topics. Can I can I tell you how um, Scrivener concludes, and that'll be our conclusion? He says, and and listen, because I thought this was this was great. I couldn't say it any better. Everyone who is confronted confronted with an absurdity, uh, absurdly improbable event, Christianity rose to life to have dominion over the world. Christians say we have an explanation. Christianity rose to life because Christ rose to life. And if you start leaning towards the Jesus explanation, then you can embrace the most wonderful truths that the world is loved and loved to death, that such love is the very essence of who God is, that behind the history you witness is a history maker who can be trusted, that above the values you prize is a person who embodies them, that beneath the values you violate is the mercy to forgive you, and that beyond the death you must die is the life he has pioneered, resurrection. Unquestionably, these are extraordinary ideas to embrace, but then all ordinary ideas are off the table. We live in an utterly extraordinary world where the heirs of a holy, improbable history. And I would end it by just say, because of him, the extraordinary Jesus. Don. Amazing conversation. Amazing thoughts. Thank you for pulling this podcast together. Uh, it's been fun to talk through all of these things with you. Well, thank you. And I really 
Um, I loved these books. As you can see, I, I leaned on them heavily. I learned a lot from them. And uh, I recommend them. Scrivener's, I would start with, you know, if you're thinking about reading one of these, Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe, would be a great place to start. Perfect. I'm probably going to do that myself. It sounds fantastic. So thank you all for listening to The Search Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating or a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening. (laughs) 